Um, as you go up to Genesis 16, let me share another verse with you. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 13, just a reminder of what we're doing here. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he writes the following. He says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul placed such an emphasis on the reading of the Word, the teaching of the Word, the studying of the Word. And we're on a study plan here. A through-the-Bible study plan, all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, Adam to Jesus. It's going to take us about 28 years, but we're on a plan nonetheless. I'm working on it. (laughs) When I was in college, um, I was in a college town that was filled with churches. And in the particular church that I, was, that I belonged to, that I grew up in, there were 35 churches in this town of just that church, not to mention all the other denominations. So we had all kinds of choices to go through. We could go to the Highland Church of Christ or the Fifth and Grape, Fifth and Grape Church of Christ. Um, all kinds of... Sorry, it slipped there. Yeah. All these churches that had kind of, you know, splintered and spread out in this, in this small town of Abilene, Texas. But as a college student, I go to a church and I, I, you know, I was looking for a good teacher. And I'd find when I'd sit down and I'd realize he'd be like halfway through Exodus. He'd be like, oh, I missed the first part. And so the next week I just wasn't motivated to go. So I thought, I've already missed half of it. I'm not going to know what's going on. So I'd go to another church and there'd be a guy halfway through, John. You know, and everywhere I went, because at that time, especially among these churches, and it's a good thing, expository preaching was the deal. Everybody was teaching through books. And I'm a college kid and I'm thinking... Okay, I'm here nine months out of the year. I'm home on Christmas vacation, sometimes on Easter vacation. I'm, I'm going to miss so much. And so I had a hard time locking in and just sticking with one church, with one teaching through. But there was something that I, that I misunderstood, and that's that every single verse, every page of Scripture is inspired by God. Every moment that you can grab in the Word is worth it. Whether you walk into the middle of a Bible study, the middle of a teaching or not, is, is entirely beside the point. Whether you make it from the beginning of Genesis through the end of Revelation is not the point. The point is being in the Word. And so we're just going to keep teaching through and it, it, it amazes me that it still attracts people. We continue to, you've seen Sunday morning, continues to grow. And people are showing up and hearing something for the first time. They have none of the background that most of you have in studying through Genesis so far. They just catch one one message, one lesson, one study. But that's the power of God's Word. And that's why we're about what we're about. So we're going to just keep doing it and keep making our way through. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. You recall the story, and we already read the first six verses on Sunday, but let's just review them very quickly. It tells us now, Sarah, I, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah, I said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. That surprised me. I've heard the story many times. I I hadn't realized he actually took Hagar as a wife. 
it wasn't just a one-shot deal, go and sleep with her, have a child. It was, now Abram is a polygamist. But it goes on. It says that, uh, verse 4, he went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Kind of a, I can have a kid and you can't. And sir, I said to Abram, may the wrong done upon me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. And I'm not sure what Sarah was looking for there. May the Lord judge between you and me. I think both are at fault. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly. And she fled from her presence. Quick review. Sunday we looked at three things in the story. The problem. The problem was emptiness. That Sarai was barren. She couldn't have children. There was an emptiness that couldn't be filled. Wasn't filled up to this point. And Sarai and Abram are getting older. The proposal was expedient. It was their way to do things. You recall back in chapter 15. Back in chapter 15, God came to Abram and said, Hey, you're going to bear a son. You're going to have a, a multitude of people. You're going to be a great father. You're going to have many descendants. You're not even going to be able to count them. And Sarah thinks this stuff through in her head. Sarah I at this point. And she comes up with her own conclusion. Because God's promised something, but he hasn't followed through. And we get real uncomfortable with that. When God makes a promise and nothing's happened yet, that might show that God's promises don't come true. I've got to help him. And so we jump right in there just like she did and it doesn't make matters better. It makes it worse. Well, she came up with this expedient proposal, culturally acceptable, totally acceptable in the day, humanly logical, this solution of Sarai's. But the price, as you know, is exponential. Marital problems, familial problems, and global disaster all the way up to the present day. So here we pick up the story again. There's your background if you missed Sunday. Verse 7, now... The angel of the Lord found her. Who? Hagar. Okay? Sarah drives Hagar out. Sends her away. She's gone. She's out of the picture. She's running now. But the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. By the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. And then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So Hagar is on the run. Going back and looking at this a little bit closer. Verse 7, Hagar's on the run. She's taken off, and here at the beginning of this new section, this kind of new story that follows Hagar, we have another first mention. 
This is the first time in scripture where the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is mentioned. And it's extremely significant. In fact, it probably should be all capitalized. The word for angel here is malach, which means messenger. It also means prophet, priest, and teacher. But this particular angel, this messenger, deserves a capital M because we're now studying another instance of the pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. This is not just an angel. But once again, we see Jesus himself coming into the picture. How do you know that? How can we be sure? I mean, we keep seeing these little things, these indications. It seems like every week we, we find something that we can use to say, Oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. There he is again. Well, what is it behind all this that makes us see these things? Let me give you three keys to recognizing Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a few different lists, and some of them are going to overlap tonight. And hopefully when we're done, it'll all make sense. But three keys to recognizing Jesus in the Old Testament. Number one is adoration. Adoration. Angels are not allowed to, nor do they ever, accept worship. With two exceptions. One, Satan went after worship. As an angel, he wanted to place himself higher than, than the Father, higher than God. He sought worship. He wanted people to worship him. And that's been what he's been about since the beginning. But there's another exception to the rule, and that's when the angel happens to be, the messenger happens to be Jesus himself. Because Jesus being God does accept worship. He accepts adoration. He accepts praise. Revelation 19.10 tells us the following. John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. You see, at this point, John is receiving revelation, but an angel is speaking to him. And John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus accepted worship. We see that in the triumphal entry. Luke chapter 19 verse 40. As he's coming in and all the people are crying out, Hosanna, praise to his name. And the, the Pharisees get real uncomfortable and say, Hey, tell, tell your people to be quiet. To quiet down. And Jesus, and Jesus says, Hey, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. The very stones themselves will praise my name. So Jesus doesn't shut them down. Thomas comes to Jesus after the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 21. Thomas shows up, and, and, and he's, he's in that upper room with the other apostles, and Jesus just appears out of nowhere. Thomas is blown away. And when he realizes, when he literally puts his fingers in the, the holes in Jesus' hands, puts his hand in his side, he, he falls back, he kneels down, and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts the worship. He takes the praise as the only one who is authorized to accept praise, and that's God himself. The angel of the Lord accepts adoration. Number two, the angel of the Lord accepts or has authority. He has authority. Listen to verse 10. Listen to what the angel says. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. What angel has the right to say that? What angel has the right to speak for God? And this is different. You see other angels coming into contact with human beings, such as Gabriel. But the language is very different. Gabriel, in talking to Daniel, or in talking later in the New Testament to Mary, same, same angel, Gabriel. He, he comes and he says, the Lord says, the Lord has told me. Don't, don't be afraid, Mary, for the Lord is going to do this. This angel says, I. 
This always confused me when, again, back when I was in college and reading and studying these things, no one ever explained that one to me. Why does the angel speak for the Lord? Speak with the Lord's words. Why does the angel speak in the first person? I will do these things because this angel is a very specific angel. Not angel in the way that you think of with wings or, or you know, ministering spirits of God, but as in a messenger. This angel of the Lord is the Lord Jesus, and he has the authority to speak. You, you can look at it this way. When angels speak, they speak for the Lord. But when the angel of the Lord speaks, when Jesus speaks, he speaks as the Lord. It's a for the Lord versus as the Lord difference. So the angel speaks, the angel of the Lord speaks with authority. So adoration, authority, and number three, appellation. Appellation or name. And you're going to see four key names tonight as we go through the study. Here's key name number one. This is a, you may make a little side list if you're taking notes. The first name is El Roy. Not El Roy. El Roy. Which means you, God, see me. You, God, see me. This is the name that in verse 13, Hagar gives to the Lord. She is running. She is scared. She's afraid. She's broken. She's a fugitive. And the Lord shows up and she says, you are a God who sees. Now had she said that to an angel, the angel would have responded, no, actually I'm not a God who sees. I'm a servant of the God who sees. In the same way that the angel responded to John, hey, don't, don't call me God. Don't worship me. You worship God. I'm just a messenger boy. But this angel accepts this, this adoration, this authority, this appellation. You are the God who sees, Elroy. Hagar is saying here, and listen to this, it says, You are God who sees, for she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Better translation, basically she's saying, Was, was I looking for him? Was I looking for the Lord? No, I wasn't. But he was looking for me. He saw me. He tracked me down. Now, this is stunning, and the reason I bring this up, this first mention of the angel of the Lord as Jesus, is we see something wonderful here. If this is the first time that Jesus actually shows up, if this is the first time, it's amazing who he shows up to. Now, you may say, well, Rick, wait a minute. You said back in, in 15 that the word of the Lord was Jesus and that he showed up there and, and back in 14 Melchizedek was Jesus and he showed up there so what is it? well let me back up and say this I personally believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus however it's debatable it's debatable there are those who would say hey it's just a type of Jesus a picture of Jesus of the Jesus who would come of the one who would come from Jerusalem the king of Salem just a, a type. And that's possible. It is possible that Melchizedek is not Jesus. I personally think that he is. But it's debatable. Same with the word of the Lord in the last chapter, in chapter 15. That the word of the Lord may have literally been the spoken word and not been an actual physical appearance. But here we have a non-debatable appearance by the angel of the Lord. He comes to Hagar. He is present there with Hagar. And it's amazing that he chose to reveal himself to her at all. Number one, because he comes not to the father of the faithful, but to a fugitive. Not to a seeker, but to a runner. Jesus shows up to one who is running away from her Lord, and not to one who is looking for the Lord. It was illegal, by the way, what Hagar was doing. 
illegal and immoral in her country for you see she was not only running away as a slave a runaway slave but she also was a kidnapper she had in her belly Abram's child and in that day in that culture that child belonged to him not to her and she was running with his offspring she could have been in big trouble she was a fugitive and the Lord reveals himself to her how amazing he also comes not to a wise man but he shows up to a woman now ladies just hang with me a second here but I gotta tell you in Jesus day and in Abram's day women were at best second class citizens at best in fact here's a great rabbinical morning prayer men you may want to think no don't ever pray this but rabbis used to pray thank you Lord that you did not make me a Gentile a dog or a woman in that order I didn't make this up it's not my feeling but look at what Jesus does in the same fashion as we see the angel of the Lord going to Hagar a fugitive woman Jesus in John chapter 4 shows up at the well and meets a Samaritan woman and she's the first person that he reveals his messiahship to he doesn't tell Peter doesn't tell John, doesn't stand before the apostles and say, hey guys, I am Messiah. The first person that we have recorded in scripture who hears from the lips of Jesus himself, I'm he, I'm the one, is a woman at a well who is somewhat of an outcast in her world. That tells you something about the character of Jesus. The first person that Jesus shows up to after the resurrection is a woman. It's Mary Magdalene. He doesn't go straight to Peter. He doesn't go to John or the apostles. He doesn't show up apparently to Caiaphas or Annas, the high priest. He goes to Mary. He catches her by surprise. He appears to her. What are we saying? That God is El Roy. The God who really sees. Look at it this way, Matthew 18. Jesus said, Matthew 18 verse 12, If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have gone astray, so it is, which have not gone astray, so it is, with, so it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. These are not just words. When Jesus talks about the 99 sheep who are safe in the pen and the one that's lost and the idea of the Son of Man going and seeking and saving the lost, going out after that one, these are not words. These are not just nice teachings. This is Jesus' nature, His character. And we see it in the pages of the Old Testament when He shows up to Hagar, who in the culture was a fugitive and a woman and a nobody. Nobody. Not to mention the fact that the offspring in her womb was not by God's design. Ishmael was not what God had asked Abram to do. Ishmael was not the one through whom God was going to bless Abram and bless all the families of the earth. This would have been better if she had just gone away. In fact, wouldn't you agree that historically it probably would have just been better if Hagar had just gone away? No Ishmael. If she had just died out in the wilderness, would have saved the Middle East a whole heck of a lot of problems. But you know... God is not that kind of God. He is El Roy, the God who sees. The God of wonders beyond our galaxy 
who has time for little ones who has time for you and time for me and if you ever question that in your life if you are ever having a time maybe even this week if you're questioning where you stand with God I have one word for you Hagar a woman who is surprisingly visited by the angel of the Lord but that's the very nature of Jesus Luke 19.10 the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost I talked to Hagar on the phone this week I'm going to use the name Hagar because I don't want to use the name of, of this person but a woman who has had a very very hard life very hard life she's a good friend of Cheryl's and mine and I spoke with her for about an hour earlier this week she is living with her boyfriend because she can't afford to live anywhere else at least from her perspective in her world right now she's divorced but through the divorce her husband ended up with phenomenal divorce attorneys and she couldn't afford anyone so the state gave her one who blew it and now she pays child support to him and he has gone after her to garner her wages which she only makes ten dollars an hour as a nursing assistant in a nursing home so now she's getting five bucks an hour after he takes half because legally they can't take more than fifty percent she has to have an apartment with at least two bedrooms so that her children can come visit her on her on her days and she can't even afford five five bucks an hour how can you get an apartment how can you buy food she goes from week to week to week wondering how she's possibly going to survive and it's been a horrible horrible situation it's just spiraled and on Sunday we had the greatest conversation we've had in years this this is a woman this Hagar who Cheryl and I have been praying and praying and praying for and something has happened she has met someone she works I, I, I said in a convalescent home with with elderly people aging people but a woman came into the home who was not older she just needed to convalesce she was 45 years old she has MS and because of the MS she fell and she broke her hip she was in the hospital but she couldn't really go home but couldn't stay in the hospital so she ended up in this convalescent home and Hagar was taking care of her was visiting her was, was talking with her and the woman began to share Jesus with her now Cheryl and I have shared Jesus with this particular Hagar many times but it wasn't the right time or she wasn't hearing or wasn't able to hear but she heard this woman and this woman said to her and I love this it's just, she said maybe the reason that I broke my hip in the first place was so that I could come and talk to you and that's faith that's amazing and on Sunday as I spoke to Hagar on the phone she said you know what my life has changed overnight she had gotten up and gone to church that morning oh one other thing the way that she found this church she asked the woman in the convalescent home do you know of a church near where I live and the woman said my church you can go to my church well where is your church within walking distance of Hagar's house right now and we had the best conversation that we have had and she began to realize as we talked on Sunday she was just saying is God, does God really care for me does he really care for me now folks I'm not making this stuff up doesn't just go I mean as I started to read and study and look at Hagar this week I just went <laughs> I just talked to her but see God really cares we matter to him individual little people when we don't even think we matter to ourselves or to anyone else in the world God is El Roy the God who really 
sees. Look at verse 14. One other quick thing here before we move on. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, which literally means the well of him who sees, or the well of the vision of life. Hagar is a true believer because of what she does here. Listen, she believed in the Lord, then she confessed to the Lord, and then she obeyed what the Lord commanded, and what did He command? Hagar, go back. Not only go back, but go back and submit. But Lord, Sarah was abusing me. She, she was treating me harshly. I had to get out of there. I understand, Hagar. But you need to go back. You need to submit. See, the Lord calls us not to the easy life, but sometimes very much to the hard life. To the difficult decisions. But I'll guarantee you something. When Hagar went back, God went back with her. And protected her. And cared for her. Hagar is a true believer. Believing in the Lord, confessing to the Lord, obeying what the Lord commanded. And it raises a question, how is a person saved? How is a person saved? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 tells us if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. By the way, Hagar's not a Jew, not of the line of Abram, not of that line at all. She's Egyptian. No distinction. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you might want to keep an eye out for Hagar in heaven. Because I have a sense that she's probably going to be there. Verse 11. Go back a bit here. Verse 11 tells us that the angel of the Lord said to Hagar something about this child Ishmael. And we need to pay attention to this. It's important. It's practical even for today. Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael. That's the second important name. First key name that we mentioned, El Roy. The God who really sees. But now, God gives a name to this child. Ishmael. God hears man. God hears man. He's not only the God who sees, he's the God who hears. He doesn't miss a thing. And he names Isaac Ishmael. Well, reading a little bit more about this, verse 12 says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. That phrase to the east is not as accurate as it should be. The phrase should be here. He will live in defiance or in the face of all his brothers. That's quite a picture of Ishmael and his descendants. And folks, his descendants have not disappointed. His descendants are an interesting, colorful, wild, defiant people. The descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs. In fact, Ishmael is one of two key branches that come out of Abram, Abraham. Two key branches... One branch is through Ishmael, and the other branch you'll see in a little while is through Esau. And these two people groups come out and are the Arab peoples today. And tell me if this does not describe life in the Middle East. A wild donkey of a man, hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, living in defiance of all his brothers. And this is what we see boiling and going on 
in the Middle East. You know, I think about Osama bin Laden, and I have absolutely no respect for him as a person, as, as a being of evil. I mean, he, what he has done, the atrocities in the world. But isn't it amazing that this guy who has absolute wealth, I mean, wealth untold, money that none of us will ever even see, much less understand, having that much cash flow. And he is so elusive. Back and forth between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Over there, they, we cannot, we have all the resources of the greatest country in the world and we cannot catch this guy. This little weasel. A wild man. Wild donkey of a man. And when you look at the people of, of the Arabs, so much of this is just continued to be played out even today. Folks, here's the tragedy. The Arabs, though they are among the descendants of Shem, they draw their lineage back to Abraham, but they don't draw their lineage back to God. In fact, they call on a God by the name of Allah who is actually a demon. Now, allow me to be a little brash, even possibly offensive, for a moment. Well, actually, let's let John MacArthur do that. In his book, Hard to Believe, <laughs> he says the following, and I quote, Islam is a damning system. Buddhism is a damning system. Hinduism is a damning system. Simply not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever your system, is enough to damn a person. People in false religions do not worship the true God by another name as some suggest. They unwittingly worship Satan's demons. Now don't get upset with me yet. Hang on. But listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20. The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. And you may say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not fair. I have known some very good Buddhists. I've had lunch with some great Hindu people who are extremely sincere. I know some peace-loving Muslims, and it seems to work for them. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is inherent in this statement. It seems to work for them. What works? For you see, it seems to me that the measure of whether or not something works is does it bring about the desired result? Does it bring about the desired result? If, if you're just looking for a sense of well-being in the world, then I suggest you either take up yoga or eat more chocolate. That'll give you the sense of well-being. If that's what you're looking for, this generic peace, but if you're looking for eternal salvation, you will not find it anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. Period. There's not an alternative. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but we need to understand this. Folks, as you talk to friends who do not believe in Jesus, understand the reality. There is no way to heaven for them unless it's through Jesus. That's it. And I've, I've talked to so many Christians who say, well, I, I've, got, I've got friends who believe other things, and I just I respect them for it. Great, you're respecting them straight to hell. And I don't believe God wants that for anybody. Well, are you saying that all Arabs are going to hell? Of course not. Neither being an Arab, nor an Israeli, nor a European, or an African, or American, none of that determines where you're going. Only belief in Christ and Him crucified, that's what saves us. 
let's bring it a little closer to home. Being a Catholic or a Protestant or a Baptist or an Anglican or an Episcopalian or an independent Christian or a member of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, none of that will save you. Only belief in Christ and Him crucified can save you and me. Chapter 17, verse 1. Hagar goes home and she submits. And time rolls on. Verse 1 tells us, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, When was the last time God spoke to Abram prior to this? He was 85 years old. 13 years have now passed. He was 85 and God came to him and said, Hey, you're going to have a son. You're going to have descendants. And then when he was 86, he had one, Ishmael. Not the one that God wanted him to have. Well, God appears, but not to Abram. He appears to Hagar. And now 13 years go by. And Abram is 99 years old. What do you suppose Abram is thinking at this point? I guess it was right. I guess I was right to go in and sleep with Hagar. I guess I was right to produce Ishmael. He's my man. Ishmael. Ishmael. If he can't do it, nobody can. Thirteen years. And God has not spoken to Abram once in that time. Now why is that? Is God mad at him? Is God, you know, doing kind of what we do? Well, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to take my football and go home. You're not going to do it the way I told you to. Well, I just won't be your friend. I won't be your God anymore. No. What God's doing here is what He does in our lives when we choose a different direction than the one He offers. When we choose a different lifestyle or a different path. When God clearly says, hey, I want you to go this way and it's going to be good. And we go, yeah, I'd rather go this way. God always does the same thing. Okay? And He allows us to play out our decisions. He allows, more specifically, sin to run its course, even to work its pain in our lives. Until we get to the point, that place, where God can now come to us again and say, Now, do you understand? Are you ready for a better way? Do you want to come back and go the way that I've laid out for you? And then it depends on us. Are we going to listen? Well, Abram is kind of blown away here. And what God is about to say is amazing. Tells us when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. We have another first mention. I have just a little bell up here. So every time there's a first mention in Genesis, we just ding, 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 ding. Little light flashes. First mention, God Almighty. You've probably heard the name in its Hebrew form, El Shaddai. And this is the first time that El Shaddai is mentioned in Scripture. Now, I've got to tell you something about this word that I discovered this week. Amazing to me. It's actually formed by two Hebrew words. The two words that come together to form Shaddai, which means Almighty, are Shadad, which literally means powerful, strong, and burly. It is a masculine, tough, manly word. Shadad. The other one is Shad, which literally means breast, or specifically, the breast of a nursing mother. Now, listen to that contrast. This is, this is incredible. Powerful, strong, burly, nursing mother. Tough, manly, masculine, soft, feminine. And these two come together in El Shaddai. El Shaddai. 
By the way, biblically speaking, men are supposed to be masculine and women are supposed to be feminine. That's why there are actual commandments given against transsexuality and homosexuality and the blurring the lines between the sexes that we have seen so blatantly all across our nation the last week. Watching it begin in San Francisco and then jumps over to New York and now in Oregon and everybody's, all these gay couples are getting married. Let's get married, let's do it, you know. And it's not only immoral, it's a violation of law. I'm just watching going, so what's going to happen? Is there going to be any punishment? Are we just going to let it? It's, it's, it's like someone popped the top off of a, a soda can and it's just, it's just exploding. The Bible is clear about this issue. Men are to be masculine. Women are to be feminine. Why? Because, folks, when we come together, when we come together as man being man and woman being woman, we reveal something together of the character of El Shaddai. The strength, the power, that masculine side of God. You saw it in Jesus when he went in and he cleared out the temple. Taking on hundreds of Jewish businessmen. I mean, that's tough. You see it in Jesus as he resurrects. You see this powerful Jesus many different times. But you also see this soft, nurturing, almost feminine side to Jesus when he bounces a child on his lap. And calls the little children to him. Or when he weeps over Jerusalem. God is the perfect model. I've said this before. And if you haven't heard this. Jesus is not only the perfect model for a a Christian man. He's the perfect model for a Christian woman. Ladies, don't pattern your life after Mary. Or after Sarah. You pattern your life after Jesus. Because he is the perfect model for your life. As much as the perfect model for a man's life. But you see, if a man loses his masculinity and a woman her femininity, we no longer reflect the nature of our Creator. And the world gets to be a very confusing place. God wants us to be what He created us to be. And it doesn't matter what culture says. And I want to say this to to our teenagers and listen closely. I was watching CNN today, flipping the channels. I don't normally sit on CNN. Not that, you know, it's horrible, but... Clinton News Network. Anyway, it's an interview with... with a, he was, they were doing an interview with an MTV News anchor. And it was a really young guy, and he's talking, and they were talking about the whole same-sex marriage thing that's going on. And the guy from MTV News said, and I quote, Kids are fine with same-sex marriage. When we poll teens watching, kids watching MTV, they're fine with it. They don't have a problem with it. See, adults that have a problem with it, the kids really don't. And Wolf Blitzer said, well, thank you, Heather does. But Wolf Blitzer said, well, why is that? Why do the teens not have a problem with it? And he said the following, and it gave me chills. Because they've grown up in a culture where it's all around them. In the movies, on TV, in the popular media, and they're used to it. And it's true. It is the exception to the rule to be a teenager today and be offended by these things. So if you are a teenager today and you're offended by these things... Way to be the exception. Keep it up. Remember, Abram and Sarai did the cultural thing. They did the culturally acceptable thing with Hagar, and look where it got them. Global fallout for thousands of years. There are different roles for men and women, different strengths, different weaknesses, different callings. I'll tell you, I've got all kinds of weaknesses, but being home, <laughs> being down in this house is revealing all the time. Like Cheryl said, Rick, will you get me a pan? I don't know where the pans are. I know nothing. 
Rick, I, I need a sweatshirt out of Han- for, for Hannah. Where do you keep those? I mean, she's, she's kind of come in there very quickly in the short term. She's set up things. She knows where everything is. I don't have a clue. I'm very weak in that area. Not much help. But I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm trying. God <laughs> comes along. Now, are you, he says, are you ready for the better way? And he brings this better way to Abram. What is that? He says, walk before me and be blameless. By the way, I just missed something here. Key name number three, the third name is El Shaddai. But here's where our list kind of overlap. There's three things that God does for Abram in the beginning of chapter 17 here. And the first is he gives Abram a revelation. And that revelation is who he is. El Shaddai. He is both the powerful God and the nurturing God. The God who flooded the earth and the God who shows up to Hagar in the desert. He gives Abram a revelation. Now he gives Abram an exhortation. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Now I looked it up. The word blameless is tamim in the Hebrew, which means complete or perfect. This is the exhortation from God. Walk before me, Abram, and be perfect. Now as a child, that always confused me. I I remember having a conversation with my mom saying, how do we do that? How can I be perfect? There's no way I can be perfect. And I think she kind of gave me some answer along the lines of, well, you just strive toward perfection. I thought that was a cop-out. How can you be perfect? How will we ever be perfect? By the way, this was the primary sticking point for our three current elders. Was this whole thing, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, talking about elders. Paul said an elder must be blameless. <laughs> and all three of the guys went, I'm out. I'm done. You know, you look at that sentence and it disqualifies any man from ever being an elder in the church. You must be blameless. So who can? Not a one of us. Furthermore, Peter, talking to all believers, says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, be holy because I am holy. And I go, holy cow, how can I do that? I'm supposed to be holy? Like God is holy? Perfect like God is perfect? How do you do that? How in the world is Abram, especially with what he's already done and what he's going to do later on, how can he possibly walk before God and be blameless? And that's the key. What does God say before he tells Abram to be blameless? He says, walk before me. Walk before me and be blameless. He doesn't say be blameless in your own power. He says, you get in front of me. Abram, you walk with me. You have faith. That's what faith is. Faith is just walking before God. I mean, think about this. It's been 13 years since God has talked to Abram at all. Why? Because he's teaching Abram faith. He's not giving Abram everything he needs every moment of his life. He comes, he tells him what the deal is, and he allows Abram to work it out, to struggle with it, to fail. And now he comes back 13 years later and says, All right. Now I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Walk before me and be blameless. Have faith because it's through faith that we receive blamelessness. It's through faith that we get righteousness. It's by faith. And faith is about walking and about waiting and about waiting and about walking. That's faith. Isaiah 40, 31, a familiar verse. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. And the older I get, the more I like this last part. They will walk and not become weary. I went skiing on Monday. 
It's been six years since I've been skiing. I'm still feeling it. I have been in more pain the last two days. <laughs> Muscles that I didn't even think I had are crying out. Walk and don't be weary. Sometimes that's all I can do. There are days for all of us where walking is all we can do. But the promise is, if you're walking in faith, you will walk. You can at least walk. There will be days where you run. There are going to be days, man, you're going to mount up with wings like eagles. More often than not, praise God that we can just walk in faith. Now watch this. It's not time for Abram to retire. It is time for him to go higher. Not to retire, not yet. He's 99 years old. You'd think it'd be a good time for him to hang it up and just relax now. No, now it's going to start to get intense. Now God is going to push him, and God gives Abram a summation of the entire covenant. Gave him a revelation, an exhortation, and now he comes to a summation of the whole covenant. He says in verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. I, my, me, I. Then Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. 99-year-old man, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. The complete summation of the Abrahamic covenant right here. Now, five quick things to note. You may want to jot these down. The first thing is the principle. The principle of the Abrahamic covenant here is grace. Grace is the principle of the covenant. Verses 2 and 3, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. You read this and you understand clearly whose covenant it is. God's, not Abram's. God's power, God's promise, not Abram's ability. It's God's grace. Folks, 24 times in the stating and restating of this covenant, the Lord God Almighty says, I will. 24 times. This is not about Abram, not about his blamelessness, his religiosity or his righteousness. It's about God's grace. And speaking of grace, the second thing to note is the paternity. The paternity is in Abram's name. And here's key name number four for that list. Abram now becomes Abraham. Verses four and five. Verse five, it says, No longer your name shall be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. By the way, both here and down in verse 15, which we're not going to get to tonight, God changes both Abram's and Sarai's names in the same way by adding the same letter. The H. In the middle of Abram, he adds the H and it becomes Abraham. At the end of Sarai's name, it changes to Sarah. And there's some pretty cool significance to that. Abram, his name meant great father. Now Abraham, this letter H, actually in Hebrew it's the He. H-E-H. The Hebrew letter He is put in there. And Abram, great father, now becomes Abraham, father of a multitude. That's the change in his name. 
No longer now are you exalted father, great father. You're now father of a multitude, literally of nations. God drives the plurality of Abraham's paternity home. Hey, you're going to be a father, a great father, not just a great father, a father of multitudes. By adding that one little letter, Sarai will become Sarah. Sarai meaning cutter, sharp-tongued. Becomes Sarah meaning princess. Isn't that cool? So now Sarah is a princess. The sharp tongue becomes the princess. <laughs> it may well be. I hope we'll see in Sarah's behavior. I don't know. <laughs> princess. Listen to this. The letter Het in the Hebrew is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A couple things to know about that. Number one, the number five in the in biblical numerology is the number of grace. God inserts grace into Abram and Sarai's names. He gives them his grace. But he does more than that. And check this out. This letter, this H-E-H in the Hebrew language, is also the abbreviation for the Ruach of God. That is, the Spirit of God. For a Hebrew, you could use the letter H just to indicate God's Spirit. So what's happening here? God takes Abram, he takes Sarai, and he inserts the letter H into their name, indicating, marking this point where he is inserting his spirit into their lives. What could not happen before his spirit was a part of Abraham and now Sarah was the birth of Isaac. Now suddenly, Abraham, Sarah, have the spirit of God with them, and God will open Sarah's womb to produce Isaac. In fact, within one year of this promise, of this conversation, Isaac will be born. Couldn't happen until God's spirit was involved. God didn't give his spirit into Abraham and Sarah in this way until they were at a point where they could accept his spirit. Where they could truly follow and believe his spirit so the principle is grace and the covenant the paternity is in Abraham's name now he's Abraham and the people number three are Abraham's seed verse seven tells us I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant this isn't just for Abram Abraham now <laughs> got to switch Abraham, it's not just for his children or his children's children, but it's for all those who are of Abraham's seed perpetually, straight down the line. And when you're analyzing the Middle East crisis today, this is critical to remember, critical to understand. Abraham's seed, the Jews, receive the promise of the covenant. Now again you say, but at this point, there is a seed from Abram. Ishmael, right. Seed from Abram. But not a seed from Abraham. And this seed from Abraham, God is going to point out very powerfully in a couple of chapters, He's going to look at Abraham and Isaac. In fact, let me give you a little preview. When Abram, Abraham goes up and accepts God's challenge, God's request to sacrifice Isaac, takes him up there, what God says to Abraham is this. Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, 
Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. God does not even recognize Ishmael. He says, your only son Isaac. Because that's the son through whom God will work. That's the son through whom God's promise would be fulfilled. Chapter 18 will make that very clear when we get there. Well, number four, the period of this covenant. The period of this covenant. We've seen the principle is grace. The paternity is in Abraham's name. The people are Abraham's seed. And now the period is specific in this. Verse 8. I will give to you and you to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for what? An everlasting possession. What is the period of this covenant? It's everlasting. It's not short term. It's not for a specific number of years. It is everlasting. One of Yasser Arafat's many circular arguments for a Palestinian homeland is the following. He says, hey, the Jews may have been here at one time, but they left. They actually didn't leave. They were driven out. But he says, sure, they were here at one time. We know that. But they're gone. They left. They went away. And my people came here. And now my people have been here. So why should we have to leave? Why should we be kicked out? Why should we be cast aside so the Jews can have this land back? They left it a long time ago. They were driven out. We came in and now they're trying to take what they lost and what now is ours. What's interesting is Yasser Arafat argues from both sides of the story. On the one hand, he says, yes, the Jews are here, but they left and we came in. On the other hand, he says, oh, but we're also, we're also of the Philistines. The Palestinian, the Philistinian people. We actually go back before the Jews were here. So he'll use any argument he can to make his case. But it's historical propaganda. Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17. I'll just read this to you. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, and I will assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Understand when Ezekiel is writing this, this is at the time where Babylon, right at that same time of Babylon, Babylon comes and, and takes the people of Judah away. The people of the ten northern tribes of Israel, already taken by Assyria, and Ezekiel is writing about something future, something that's going to happen, but he doesn't say, I will assemble you out of the country to which you have gone into captivity, Babylon. He says, I will assemble you out of the countries, plural, among which you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel, God says. I'm going to bring you back from your scattering, from your diaspora, from your dispersion. I'm going to bring you back to Israel. I'm going to regather you. And folks, this is God's timetable. God's roadmap for Israel's peace. The Bush administration has the roadmap to peace. We've talked about it. And they're calling for a Palestinian homeland by 2005. That's next year. That's coming up fast. Now, I doubt it's going to happen. I can't even imagine that it's going to happen. But if it does, America could be in, a, in for a world of hurt. Because so far, America has been such a staunch ally of Israel. But if we start giving away land that God gave to Israel, if we get involved in that, I don't know. God has already begun regathering the Jews to Israel and the stage is set for the grand finale of world history, the fulfillment of all of his promises, including his promise to return. 
By the way, quick question. When did the Jews actually lose sovereign control over the land of Israel? Can anybody recall? Think about this. When did the Jews lose sovereignty over the land of Israel? I want to sport a guess. Many people will answer this AD 70. Where in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, and that was the point where the dispersion, the, the, the final dispersion of the Jews happened. Boom, they were spread out everywhere, scattered among the nations. But it wasn't AD 70 when it actually happened. They actually lost their sovereignty about 58 years before that, give or take. Israel maintained self-rule until, as Josephus tells us, Rome finally took complete control over Israel. When did that happen? It was when sovereign rule was removed from Israel along with the right to capital punishment. Now we've talked about this in here before, but if you missed it, let me, let me back up and just share with you. There was a day around A.D. 12 where the rabbis were wailing and weeping and crying in the street, tearing their clothes putting ashes on their head. Josephus talks about it. It was that day when Rome finally had enough with Israel's obstinance. Because up to this point, Israel, though Rome was the conquering country, the conquering power, Israel still had sovereignty. They still had their own laws. They still could have their own control. But Rome said, enough, we're tired of Israel and these stiff-necked Jews, so your control is gone, and they remove sovereign power, and they remove the right to capital punishment. And on that day, when this came down, the rabbis weeped and wailed in the streets of Jerusalem, but it wasn't out of patriotism. It was because of prophecy. Genesis 49, verse 10, the prophecy is the scepter, that is the right to rule, the authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh being the Messiah. And so the rabbis understood that. We will have authority. We'll have control. We'll have the scepter. And it's not going to depart until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes. And the rabbis saw the scepter depart. Rome took ultimate control from the Jews. And suddenly, this awareness, the Messiah has not come. But on that very day in history, that precise day when this came down, a 12-year-old boy named Jesus from Nazareth was confounding the scribes and the teachers and the priests in the temple in Jerusalem. The same day where the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, were weeping because Messiah had not yet come and the scepter was gone. Messiah had in fact come. It's just that he was 12 years old. And they didn't even recognize it. I just love stuff like that. Well, I tell you this to remind you this. Whether we see it rightly or understand it clearly, when it comes to prophecy, prophecy is not what might happen. Prophecy is not what we hope will happen. It's not that we read Scripture and think, man, I hope this is fulfilled. That would be so cool if it happens this way. No, prophecy is what has happened. Prophecy has already happened. Uh, it'll make a whole lot of sense on my timetable no it doesn't not on ours but from God's it does from a God's eye view he has already seen it happen which is why it's in the Bible the Bible the prophecies are the things that God gave us that he says by the way I've already seen this it's happened I'll put it to you right now I'll give you a prehistory 
so that when it happens, you will know that I am God. You'll know beyond the shadow of a doubt. So the period of the covenant, it's an everlasting covenant. And number five, verse eight tells us the place of the covenant. The place of the covenant. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Now I know I've gone over this and over this and over this, but it's so important to understand. How many square miles is that? Do you recall the actual layout given in chapter 12, 13, 15? 300. Yes. 300,000 miles is what was given. How many has Israel held at its, the height, the pinnacle of its power? Just 30,000. 300,000 miles promised, square miles promised, 30,000 held at one point, a tithe, 10% of what God actually promised. But folks, Israel will have that land again. The time is coming when they will receive the entire inheritance. Now I would love to go on in chapter 17. I'm going to stop there. There's one last thing I want to share. We've seen tonight that God was given two new descriptive names. God was given by Hagar, El Roy, the God who sees. And God proclaimed himself that he is El Shaddai, Almighty God. We've also seen God give out two names in this section of study. Ishmael, God hears man. And Abraham, the father of multitudes. But did you know that God promises you a new name? He guarantees you one. Revelation chapter 2 verse 17 tells us the following. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. By the way, real quick on the white stone thing. The way that judgment was made in the day was a white stone was favorable. The black stone was negative. Okay, So basically God saying, I will give you favorable judgment. If I give you a white stone. There's so much more to it, I won't go into it now. But Revelation 2.17 ends with this. A new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. God's going to give you a new name. A brand new name. What does that mean? What's so important about that? Kids understand this. Kids get this. To children, names are identity. It's who they are. Cheryl, working over at the, at the Lutheran preschool the other day, she walked in there and a little child whose name is Nat, Nathaniel, is his real name, he's gone by Nat, that's all she's ever called him, and his mother works there at, at the Lutheran church and she was up there in her office and Nat comes around the corner and Cheryl says, hi Nat, he says, it's Nathaniel. <laughs> Cheryl said, it's not Nat anymore? No, it's Nathaniel. And his mom stuck her head around the corner and said, what? <laughs> Nathaniel? Yes, it's Nathaniel now. Nat was going for change. He's maturing. He's growing up. Change the name. Kids get this. Jews understood this as well. Because a name in Judaism, a name to a Jew was much more than just a moniker, much more than just something to call someone by. It was your character. It's who you were. It, it, it describes you in some way. In fact, as we've seen throughout Genesis, so many descriptive names that came to be, that came to pass. Abraham, a father of a multitude of nations, a descriptive name. And indeed, Abraham became just that. The trouble is, in my life, this name Rick is soiled. It's trashed. 
it's smudged and tarnished. Now, some of you friends of mine, you look at me and go, well, I like you, Rick, and when I think of you, I, I think good thoughts. I hope that you do. <laughs> I hope that when you think of Rick, you think happy thoughts. Because for most of you, I think happy thoughts when I think your name. <laughs> but you know what? There are people in my life that when they hear my name, they don't think good thoughts. How, how about you? There are people in your lives who when they hear your name, they go, yeah, whatever. There are things you've done in your life under your name that you would just as soon were erased, that you would just as soon wish that your name was not connected to. And like children, man, wouldn't it be great just to wipe out that name and start over? Wouldn't it be wonderful just to be able to say, you know what, I'm not Rick. That's not me. All those things that I did, all that sin, all that darkness, all that smudging and tarnishing, and that's not me anymore. I don't even know who that guy is. No, I, I and Jesus have a new name, and my new name is, and I don't know what it's going to be. Thank you. <laughs> Labored under that one too, but thanks for bringing that painful memory up. God offers us eternally a new name. I want to end on Isaiah 65. Flip over there real quickly. This is the last verse we'll look at. This idea of of change. It's not just for now, but folks, this is something to look forward to. Those of you who have gone through the study of Revelation, I think you'll see this right away, but let me point something out. Well, let me read it and I'll point it out. Isaiah chapter 65. Starting in verse 11, God is going to begin here by railing a judgment, by laying out some very serious language, but then he's going to go into kind of a comparison. Those people who hear his name, who follow his name, and how he's going to bless them versus those who don't, and then he's going to land in a really good place. So listen to this. Isaiah 65 verse 11. You who forsake the Lord, who forget... My holy mountain. What is God's holy mountain? You want to know what God's holy mountain is when he says that? He's not talking about Mount Sinai. He's talking about Jerusalem. Okay? You who forget, verse 11, who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups mixed with wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Why? Because I called and you did not answer. I spoke. You did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. And I want you to see this, the next two verses, the next three verses here. It's a comparison of the marriage feast of the Lamb and the tribulation. Watch it go back and forth. Behold, my servants will eat. Marriage feast of the Lamb. But... You will be hungry. Tribulation. Behold, my servants will drink. Marriage feast of the Lamb. But you will be thirsty. Tribulation. Behold, my servants will rejoice. Wedding feast. Party time. But you will be put to shame. Tribulation. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart. Marriage feast of the Lamb. But you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. It's the tribulation. Verse 15, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, 
And the Lord God will slay you. But listen to this. But my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create Bara. Brand new, something from nothing, new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. God has a new name waiting for you, a new name waiting for me. That will come in a time where all of the things attached to who we are that are negative and sinful and dark, all of the stuff that we just wish we could completely erase from our minds will be erased in that time where the former things will not be remembered or come to mind anymore. Won't it be great to have that name in that day? A brand new name. Let's pray. El Shaddai, El Roy, God Almighty, the God who really sees. Lord, we praise you. And we glory, Lord, in your name and in who you are and in what you've done. And we recognize, Father, that you call, that you speak, that you make the first move, that you seek us out as fugitives like Hagar in the wilderness. That in every instance in our lives, Father, you made the first move. And we praise you for this, Lord. And we acknowledge your greatness and your authority. We see in you the grace that is so overwhelming and so far beyond the grace that we can muster in our lives. And we praise you for this, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for being a God who loves us so much, forgives us, and calls us to walk in faith. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to do so. That as we walk before you in faith, that you will cause us to be blameless. But Lord, as we trust you and learn to be your children, that you'll call us by our new names. And Father, as Satan tries to Remind us of all the things that we've done, of all the things that have tarnished the names we have. Father, remind us of our future. Remind us that you're coming. And prepare us, Lord, in this life for that day when you will call our names, our new names, and we'll come home to you. In Jesus' name, amen.